Well, there was a new uh, vicar in the parish, um, and uh, after his first service, he, uh, the first evening service, on the first Sunday evening he was there, he wandered down into the village pub, and um, he ordered two gin and tonics. And he sat there, and over the course of the next sort of hour or so, he drank these two gin and tonics, and then when they were finished, he ordered two more. And the landlord thought, well, that's interesting. Uh, anyway, next week, same thing happened. He finished up the evening service, wandered down to the village pub, and he ordered two drinks, this time two pints of beer, and then he had two more pints of beer. And uh, Landon thought, how strange. Anyway, this continued week after week. He would go down to the pub and he would always order, uh, it doesn't matter what, what drink it was, glass of wine, pint of beer, but it was always two, two gin and tonics, two, gin and, uh, two pints of beer, two glasses of wine. And after a few weeks of this, the landlord says to him, oh, excuse me, I hope you don't mind me asking, but I've never seen anybody do that before. Why is it you always uh, drink your drinks in pairs? And he says, well, uh, I got a twin brother. And when my twin brother moved to Australia, uh, we actually made an agreement that we would always drink our drinks in pairs, as, if it, as though to remember each other by, as though we were, we were both there with each other. Oh, that's very nice. Anyway, uh, this carries on, and month after month goes by, same thing happens. At the same time, every week he goes down to the pub, orders pairs of drinks, until one day, and the door opens, and the priest walks through the, vo- the door with a very solemn and sombre, long-drawn out face, and he walks over to the bar slowly, and he says to the landlord, I'd like to order one gin and tonic, please. And the barman gulps and sort of fears the worst, and he says, is everything okay? And he says, yeah, it's okay, it's just that it's Lent, and uh, I personally have given up alcohol. Um, well, <laughs> well, we're into this season of Lent, aren't we? People are giving things up. I don't know whether anyone here is giving things up. Why do people give things up for Lent? It's a tradition, people give things up for Lent. Why is that? Well, Lent is traditionally a time of focusing on what have been called the spiritual disciplines, as that collect that we just had called it, disciplines or spiritual exercises or spiritual practices. As Bishop Andrew, our bishop, wrote to us clergy in a letter this week, he said it's in order to discipline the self that we embark on Lent every year. Our holy habits tend to drift and slacken, he says. I'm sure we all know what that's like, don't we? Prone to wander, as we've just sung. We sort of get spiritually flabby. And he says, we need Lent to tighten up our resolve. So Lent is, is a time to get into shape, get into spiritual uh, good health. If you want to get physically fit, you go to the gym, don't you? I don't know, you've probably noticed there's a gym opening up uh, in Melksham. I think it's opening up this week, this week, isn't it? Have you seen that? Aztec Fitness Rooms. Uh, anyone planning to join Aztec Fitness Rooms? No, I have to admit, I half wondered that there wouldn't be too many hands went up this morning if, uh, about joining the Aztec Fitness Rooms, but I'm sure many people in Melksham are going past that and going, oh, maybe I ought to join the gym. I probably could do with some exercise. And, you know, Lent, just like we want to get physically fit, Lent is a good time just to focus on spiritual practice, spiritual discipline, spiritual exercise. And so what we're going to do, we're going to spend the next five uh, out of six Sunday mornings during Lent studying together this chapter, Matthew chapter six. It's a classic chapter on spiritual disciplines. It's part of uh, what's called the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon that's ever been preached by Jesus. And if you look at the start of it, actually, if you've got that open, turn to the beginning uh, of chapter five, verse one, where it says the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount Who's Jesus preaching this sermon to through Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7? It says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside, sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. So this sermon on the mount is to Jesus' disciples. It's, so, and it's the same word, isn't it? 
Disciples are people who have been disciplined. And if we want to be disciples of Jesus, we've got to be disciplined. So actually, this middle chapter, chapter 6, if you have a look at that, you can see, um, well, there's five sections, giving to the needy, prayer, fasting, treasure in heaven, and do not worry. We're going to take those, what, each of those each week in these next five Sundays. And you can see it's all about these sort of spiritual disciplines, giving to the needy, uh, or alms giving, as um, traditionally it used to be called, not giving your alms, but giving A-L-M-S, giving to the needy, prayer, fasting. And these spiritual disciplines and practices, they're part, actually, of every religion. Uh, they're not unique to Christianity. You can go to any religion. Everyone says you ought to pray. Everyone says you ought to fast. Everyone says you ought to give money to the poor. Uh, all observant Old Testament Jews would have done these three things. They'd have been familiar with that. Actually, Islam has the same. Um, along with um, uh, reciting the creed and making a pilgrimage to Mecca once during your lifetime, these three, giving, prayer, and fasting, constitute three of the five pillars of Islam. Um, so these spiritual disciplines and practices, they're not, um, Jesus doesn't get rid of them when he gives this sermon to his disciples, but he revolutionises them. He completely transforms them, because he in fact says, actually, there's a way to do them wrong. He gives a warning. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. He says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in such and such a way. He says, be careful you don't do it like this. He says, be careful that you, there's a, that you don't do your righteousness wrong. Uh, you know, Jesus would have been very um, generous and kind to uh, those of other religious traditions, but he certainly would not have. In fact, he didn't condone equally all religious practice. In fact, as we're going to see in the moment, he uses very strong language to describe some so-called religion. He says it's hypocritical. This is strong medicine indeed. So he says there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. So what we can do, if Paul, for the rest of the time, we've got just this behind us to kind of focus our minds. Real religion, what we're going to call these next five weeks is real religion because there's possible, there's such a thing as false religion or dead religion. And Jesus doesn't want us as his disciples to be um, uh, practicing false or dead religion. We want to get spiritually fit. We want real religion. And so if you like, over these next few weeks, uh, if you want to embark upon a, a, a journey of uh, interlent, well, Jesus is going to be our, our guide, our personal trainer, if you will, as we put these um, religious, spiritual disciplines into practice. So after that sort of rather long-winded introduction, with the time we've got left, let's think about the first of these spiritual practices, giving, giving to the needy. And again, Jesus assumes that we will give to the needy. He assumes that it's his disciples. We won't keep all of our money to ourselves. Verse 2, he says, when you give to the needy. In fact, he assumes we're going to do all of these things. When you give to the needy, verse 2. Verse 5, when you pray, when you fast. He assumes we're going to do these things. And Jesus' listeners would have been familiar with, they would have been givers. They would have been used to giving regularly. They'd have been familiar with the biblical principle of tithing, which is actually what that Old Testament reading that Linda brought to us was all about. And actually what the Bible uh, says is that um, everything that we have is actually a gift from God. Nothing that we have belongs to us. We're only sort of stewarding it, if you, if you will. We've been given it by the Father. And in recognition of that, um, we give 10%. That was the biblical principle of tithing, giving 10%. It's not a rule of you must give 10%. Some people, 10% is far too much, not practical, can't give 10%. Other people, actually, 10% is quite easy to give. Maybe they ought to think about giving more. But it's kind of a benchmark of something to aim at, 10% of giving. So Jesus says, when you do that... You know, he's not so much concerned with whether we're giving 
he assumes that we are, he's concerned with why we're giving. And because this is the difference, the difference between real religion, true Christian giving, according to Jesus, and false or dead religion is actually the motivation. Jesus is less concerned with what's going on with our wallets and more concerned with what's going on in our hearts. So what's this kind of uh, giving which Jesus actually says is not healthy for us? He says it's giving that is done to impress other people. Look at verse 1. This is the warning, isn't it? Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others. Why? To be seen by them. Verse 2. When you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets and on the street corners. Why? To be honoured by others. In fact, this is the mark of all dead religion. Dead prayer and dead fasting is done in order to impress other people. Same with dead prayer. Verse 5. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to pray standing on the synagogues and street corners to be seen by others. Same with fasting, verse 16. Don't do it in such a way as to show others that you're fasting. And the word Jesus uses to describe this kind of religion is very strong. It's hypocrite. Look again, verse 2. He says, when you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do. Verse 5, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. When you fast, verse 16, don't look somber as the hypocrites do. Incredibly strong word that he uses. But it's the same problem today, isn't it? Actually, one of the number one reasons, why aren't people a Christian? Why don't people want to go to church? Because many people today think that religious people and Christians are hypocrites. And that's not a new problem. Jesus says it's possible to practice our religion in such a way as to be hypocritical. And it's a Greek word, actually. Hippocrates, it's a Greek word, translates straight into English as hypocritical. The original Greek word meant actor. An actor. Hippocrates is an actor on the stage in the theatre. And just think of classical Greece. Think of the, um, you know, the, 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 the two masks, which are like the symbol or the logo. If you go to the theatre and on the ticket or on the side of the thing, it's got those two, the happy mask and the sad mask, hasn't it? And that's in classical Greek. An actor would wear a mask. And he says that false religion is like that. It's actually just putting on a performance. It's all done for the audience and all done just so I can get a round of applause. And I'm trying to show off to other people. And, you know, I think that's so contemporary in our culture which is actually so increasingly keen on virtue signaling have you come across that expression virtue signaling it's not kind of what it sounds like signaling our virtue to everyone else i'm sort of so virtuous i want to signal it i want to tell everybody else look how virtuous i am and so many people that's what they're doing today and according this phrase has kind of been started people are talking about it and you kind of read about it in the news and things it's in entered the popular kind of consciousness that people are virtue signaling a lot And the guy who came up with this phrase, according to The Guardian, he says, I felt that there were people who felt very proud of themselves, but they'd done nothing but say racism is awful or had voted a certain way. And so they thought they were very virtuous, he said, reflecting on the phrase. He said he felt real virtue was represented by a friend who spent five years diligently, quietly caring for her ill husband, rather than people who posted about their politics online. It indicated a certain vanity and boasting. <laughs> That's so striking, isn't it? We're so keen to show our virtue. So easy, isn't it, to sort of change our profile picture, to show that we display uh, solidarity with whatever particular cause it is which everybody's supposed to care about at the moment. 
But how many of those who've displayed that virtue to other folks, who've so easy to change our profile picture to a blue and yellow flag, and how many of those who've done so have actually given to the needy and got their wallets out and contributed to the unfolding humanitarian crisis in Eastern Europe? Now, Jesus is challenging us. He's saying it with love. I think he's got a smile on his face, but he's being deliberately provocative when he says, verse 2, when you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do. Now, there's no evidence that actually the, the, the Pharisees, the people he's talking with, actually did that. You know, they actually went around and, you know, look how generous I am. I'm announcing it with a trumpet. I don't think they actually did that. But actually, and neither do we actually with a trumpet, but we come up with all sorts of other ways, don't we, of blowing our own trumpet. I'm so glad our Ash Wednesday service that we just had on Wednesday was at night because uh, the last, I could just go straight home after him and wash, wash the ash off our forehead. Because actually, the last time I went to an Ash Wednesday service, it was, it was in the morning. And the people, I, I'd never been to an Ash Wednesday service before, and the people I was with said, no, you've got to keep it on all day so everybody can see. And I thought, oh gosh, isn't that exactly what Jesus tells us we're not supposed to do? Go around so that I can be seen by others. False religion is done. Why is it done? To be honoured by others, Jesus says. And so what... Uh, these people care about is not other people, not the poor, not the needy, but ourselves and our own honour. And Jesus says, end of verse 2, if that's us, truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. We've got what we're after. All we were wanted really was the praise of other people. And if we do that, well, we've got it. So that's false religion. That's one kind of false religion. Actually, there's another kind, um, much less much less easy to spot Uh, it's much more british and much more subtle because everyone can kind of spot a hypocrite in some ways like the program secret millionaire have you seen that it's not secret tools on television how generous are they you know of course that's hypocritical but much more subtle is the kind of giving which is not done to impress other people but it's actually just to make myself feel good and i think to myself and it's so subtle and we think oh i've given so generously and nobody knows i've done it anonymously well done me and we pat ourselves on the back and uh, one writer says this he says so subtle is the sinfulness of the heart it's possible to take deliberate steps to keep our giving secret from others while simultaneously dwelling on it in our own minds in a spirit of (laughs) self-congratulation don't we know what that's like oh it's challenging stuff this isn't it and so Jesus says actually when you give verse three do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Even on your, to yourself, there should be a degree of, I don't actually, I'm not spending too long thinking about this good deed that I'm doing, so that I would actually kind of get puffed up with my own pride. Well, so much for false religion. What about real, true Christian giving? What distinguishes false religion from real religion? Well, real religion is not done to impress other people. It's not done to make ourselves feel good. Real religious, true spiritual practice is done for the glory of the Father. It's not for other people, it's not for me, it's for God. It's for the Father. And one of the things that we'll see all the way through this sermon is that Jesus is constantly teaching us about the Father. Father this, the fa- God the Father, 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 Father. All the way through Matthew chapter 5, 6 and 7 on the Sermon on the Mount, 17 times Jesus talks about the Father. And it transforms everything when we know that God is our Father. It's going to transform prayer as we'll see next week when he says, when you pray, pray our Father. And so he says in verse 4 that your giving may be done in secret and then your Father 
Your father is the only one who sees what he's done in secret. Having God as our father changes everything. False religious deeds are done to appease a distant, impersonal deity. False religion has God as our headmaster in heaven, trying to spoil our fun. Our speed camera in heaven, trying to catch us out. But real religion has God as our father, who longs to bless us. That's why giving can be in secret, can't it? Verse four, it's repeated twice. Your giving may be in secret. Your father sees what's done in secret. And that's why we don't pass around a plate, actually, in the services here at St. Michael's. may have noticed we don't, we don't want to sort of, you know, many churches do that. Here's the bag, it's coming around, and everyone can see whether you're putting something in the bag. And we think, oh gosh, the bag's coming. I haven't got any cash. I don't want to, I've got to put something in, otherwise everyone will think, oh, they're not giving. It was public. Much better for it to be in secret. And I hope that we do give to this church. Uh, But actually much better for it to be done month by month by standing order or something so that actually it just comes out. Nobody sees except the father and the treasurer. But she's very discreet. (laughs) Well, how can we be these kinds of givers? Givers who are giving because we love the father, just not to impress other people, not for feeling smug. How can we have our motivations changed? Well, we've got to look to the reward. There's a reward involved. Did you notice that? Verse 1, he says, if you do it wrong, you'll have no reward from your father. And the people who are just giving for everyone else, well, truly, I tell you, they've received their reward already, the praise of other people. But you, he says, verse 4, if you give to the father in secret, he will reward you. We long for the reward of the father. And we might go, hang on a minute, should we be trying to get some reward for doing good? That sounds a bit funny, doesn't it? I mean, shouldn't we be given just because it's the right thing to do? Well, it depends what the reward is. And there's a distinction we need to make between appropriate rewards and inappropriate rewards. C.S. Lewis puts it perfectly. He says, if you marry someone for their money, obviously that's completely inappropriate. You're after something else. But if you marry someone for love, then marriage is the appropriate reward of the love you have for that person. So he says, that's why we call a man a mercenary. If he marries a woman for the sake of her money, he's a mercenary. But marriage is the proper reward for a real lover. He's not a mercenary for desiring it. A general, he says, who fights well in order to get a peerage is a mercenary. But a general who fights for victory is not. Victory being the proper reward of battle, as marriage is the proper reward of love. And the proper rewards are not simply tacked onto the activity for which they're given, but are the activity itself in consummation. And so Jesus says, when we give because we want to honour the Father. Actually, the reward of the blessing of the Father is the appropriate reward. Jesus talks about rewards all the time. And he says that we all, one day, will find out whether we're going to get a reward. We've all been given uh, different uh, bags of gold. Some of us have been given five talents, some three, some one. How will we use it, he says in another parable. The, the Father's gone away for a long time. When he comes back, will we have just buried it in the ground and haven't done anything with it and been stingy with our money? Or have we invested it, given it to the needy? And that actually we've caused an increase to happen. And the father says to the person who's been faithful, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the reward of the father, the blessing of the father. And there could be nothing better for the children to hear than when the father returns for him to look at us and go, well done. Don't you want to hear that? Well done. When he returns or we stand before him, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray.